Welcome to Relatable, a Thrive Therapy podcast. My name is Coulter Bloxham, and I am joined by my friends, Kayla Gensler and Lauren Mokeri. We are three licensed professional counselors running a therapy community in Phoenix called Thrive. And for today's episode, we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're going to do our first mailbag. So we had some listeners and some clients send in some questions and uh, we are just gonna go through those kind of one by one and we'll see how many we knock out. So this kind of reminds me of, you know, when we were kids in the 90s and they would have those radio game shows that would be like, call in if you're caller number nine, like you win tickets to Britney Spears or something. I don't know. <laughs> Did you ever call into anything like that? Coulter, I feel like you're aging us because we are older than Lauren. <laughs> so maybe, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've had- Okay, I also grew up in the 90s. Okay, you're not that fine. much older than me. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting here thinking, do you, do you even Do you even you know even who Britney Spears yeah. is, <laughs> Actually, you said Britney Spears, and I was like, I totally remember hearing that on the radio. That was exactly the concert that everybody was trying to go to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Well. I stand corrected. <laughs> fine, Lauren, I stand corrected. Really, I was more saying like you're aging us. I actually have called in. Have you, Lauren? I have not. Uh, we So when I was younger, shout out to my cousin, Lauren. Um, we called in, we were way too young to be calling in, in fact, and we called into a radio station and won, I want to say, she's going to have to correct me on this, but I want to say like Madonna tickets actually. And nice. the radio just starts to play like, it, it like was an example of someone calling and then a hang up and they were like, oh, you just missed your chance to win. And so we like, you know, got freaked out because we were like, I don't know, 10 years old or something like that yeah. and hung up. But I did actually, I think I won that, um, but I just didn't respond. <laughs> but you didn't respond? No, we hung up. They were like, caller number eight yeah, or whatever. Like freak and out we or panicked something and hung up. Like, no, yeah. no. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I feel like I've never won anything like that. Oh, I did win something, which was a friend of mine. Technically she won it, but it was when we were in Denver, they did this like, it was for the Book of Mormon, the musical, and they were giving out tickets for like $25. It were like front row tickets and you had to go and like stand in line and she won them. And we were front row center stage for $25. That's amazing. It was incredible. And some guy came up to me and he was like, all right, I got to know how much you pay for these tickets. <laughs> like, cause he's thinking it's probably like the Book of Mormon was super hot at the time. Like, uh -huh. They're probably like $500 and I'm like a young guy. So what am I doing there? And I was like, well, we kind of won them for 25 bucks. And then he was just like, are you freaking kidding me? Like he said something more colorful than that. <laughs> <laughs> that is lucky though. I don't think I've ever won anything like that, but I also don't know that I, I like really play to win things like that. Yeah. I've never called in to like a, or a, submitted anything to a podcast though for a mailbag. So I have submitted to a podcast for a mailbag. It was for the Phoenix Suns podcast that mm -hmm. I listened to. And I was the first question that they Whoa. got to. And so I felt, you have one twice then. I, I did win that. <laughs> I don't know where we're talking about winning so much. No one's winning anything today. <laughs> so and we can't really shout out people who said these for anonymity's sake. So all right. Well I'm gonna draw our first question here and it says, what should I do if my therapist is doing something I don't like or if I need something different from them? We kind of touched on some of this stuff in the last episode. I was just thinking like we, but that episode hasn't been released yet. So we do have a whole episode about the relationship between client and therapist that I think does touch on that a little bit. But those who submitted these questions have not heard that yet. So 
I think the short answer, though, is like, please bring it up with your therapist. Ideally, therapists should be well-trained to navigate conversations like that without defensiveness or, you know, trying to make the client feel bad or anything like that. And so it can be actually a really healthy opportunity to bring something up that might feel uncomfortable, but that could lead to like some really good change or resolution that's needed. And I think if you've never done that before, just speaking from the position of what it was like to be you, maybe just revisiting, hey, last session, you know, something that we were talking about didn't sit right with me or didn't make me feel, you know, comfortable. And I just wanted to bring that to your attention. So just trying to give a little bit of language for how to address that when you, if you've never done it before. Yeah, 100% echo all of that. I just want to say as a therapist, I really like when clients bring that to me because I think it's a really cool opportunity to do some work because, you know, who doesn't feel a little bit uncomfortable saying to someone, you did something and this upset me. And like Lauren said, therapists should be well-trained. I might almost say like if your therapist gets real defensive or something, then that's maybe not a good sign for the relationship Mm -hmm. that you can almost kind of use it as like a, oh, okay. Like, we're maybe not the right fit for each other. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, most therapists are really not that sensitive over like who wants to work with them or not. You know, most therapists should kind of know their lane. I guess I maybe would be if I felt like I was really the right therapist for someone. If they're like, no, you're not the right one for me. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is exactly what I do. (laughs) So I would maybe be a little bit sensitive over that. But like, I know all three of us have transitioned clients to other therapists before. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I hear from people all the time is like, they're so afraid to leave their therapist. And I I would say that always feels like a win for me getting someone to a better fit, or maybe I've just taken them as far as we can go. It's like, Hey, you, you know, gain some stuff for 20 sessions for me. And like, it's just time for a different look. Yes. Yeah. We could totally need like a different style even again, kind of when that episode does come out about, therapist-client relationship, I think that will highlight some of the things that we do talk about with like client-therapist fit. So different personality, different modalities, but definitely bring it up because it's worth making sure that you're getting the best care you can. So I will read the next one. I have one that says, is it bad to struggle with something for a long time? When should there be a concern that something is taking too long? I got this one. Yes. It is bad to struggle for a long time. And if something's taking over four hours, I would say that's probably enough time. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just love the question. Like, is it bad? Like, no, of course it's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel compassion for the person that asked this because it's so easy to be in a place of comparison and um, curiosity about, you know, how long should change take. And there's definitely this theory about change that comes to mind for me and just the idea of how hard it is to change. And, you know, I think about like the need for repetition for a really long time to really get something to sink in for our minds and to 
um, change a very complex brain. You know, if we've had, I always tell my clients, if you've had years and years and years of doing something one way and perceiving the world in one manner, then we shouldn't really expect that it's going to take five sessions or one year to completely transform the way that we have been programmed. So I think it, it just, it's subjective really, you know, how long the change can take and, being generous with yourself around, you know, what are the factors that are influencing the amount of time that the change is taking. Absolutely. And I think I love that word, like just being generous with yourself, because I think also part of the process is really trying to slow down and explore what are some of the barriers that have been getting in the way for me of being able to make this change. Because almost always we can break that down to look at like it has to do with some of the resources in our lives as far as maybe the relationships that we're connected to, um, skills that we do or don't have right now. So I think that just trying to understand a little bit more of like, why has this been the struggle for me? Where did this come from? What are some of the things that are really scary or really hard about moving towards change? Lauren, you've said something in staff meeting before that's been impactful for me, something to the effect of people will only do what, what, what was it like? People will only do what they're resourced to be able to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Nope. Not even just say bit. so many brilliant <laughs> things. Or like, I don't even that was a throwaway one. <laughs> Something to that effect of like, people can only accomplish or do what they're resourced to be able to do. And so like, if we're continuing to struggle with something, it's like, okay, like, well, what, what other resources do I need to be able to do this? Sometimes we have to like, take a step back from where we're at. It's like, I'm trying to accomplish this thing and I can't get there. or I'm trying to not struggle with this thing as much. And so it's a step back. Like, what do I need in order to be able to start to address this? Mm-hmm. The piece that I, I do want to speak to though, because the second part of this question, like when should there be concern that something is taking too long? I think even going back to that idea of looking at the therapeutic relationship, like if we have been in therapy for, let's say, a year or so, and we feel like nothing is changing or like we don't understand the path that we're on in therapy, like that might be a point to, again, check in with the therapist and be like, hey, I just want to like re-clarify together. Like, what is the path? Where are we at? Because I have had clients who have shared with me from like previous therapy experiences that you know, maybe they had a therapist who, I had a client who referred to their therapist as like a really good listener. Like, and that was something that felt good for a time, but it was like years and years of just going and talking and just being listened to and not feeling like there was a lot of direction there. So I do think that that's maybe something to pay attention to is not so much about how long something's taking, but like, do you feel like you have a clear sense of direction? I think that's a good way to think about it. I also don't really think about in terms of how long it's taking. Well, just to go back to the like continuing to struggle with something, I think so often like we'll struggle with that thing for the rest of our life. I like to think that a better measure is how long does it take me to kind of get back to homeostasis? Mm -hmm. Like how much time am, am I spending to get back to kind of a more balanced level? That's usually how I measure progress for myself. It's not like, do I struggle with this thing anymore? I think of something as well. I heard one time in terms of addictions, it was from Russell Brand, who's an actor who's kind of publicly struggled with addiction for for years. And I think he'd been sober for like 10 years or something. And the interviewer asked him, he was like, how often do you think about drugs anymore? And he said, every day. Mm-hmm. Because I think about it every single day. Yeah. And I just thought that was such an insightful answer because you know, a lot of times people are looking to get to this place like, I never think about that thing anymore. I don't struggle with that thing anymore. 
but that that's not always realistic. I guess maybe sometimes it is, but I just would say like, if you're still struggling with the thing, that can be okay as well. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, it's looking at like, how are you managing that thing mm-hmm. that you're struggling with? I, I actually to think about how you define change, right? Like that make that matters because there's so many elements to change, right? There's changing our awareness, there's changing our thinking patterns, there's changing, you know, our core beliefs around something, there's changing behavior. So I think there's just so many elements to the change process that as you're assessing whether or not change has happened, we want to consider all of those pieces because it does. if we're really just looking at behavior change, there are a lot of things that have to change internally a lot of times before we can even get to the behavior change. So that's sometimes why I think, like, what are you looking at? How are you assessing this? And where does your definition of change even come from? Okay, so I'm going to take us into our next question. Um, Coulter, I'm kind of looking at you for this one. The question is, how to stop ruminating when you notice you're doing it? Oh, geez. that's. <laughs> I feel like I should have more of like a locked and loaded answer for that. I would say the first part is like to notice that you are ruminating. And we're kind of trying to change our goal to not stopping it anymore necessarily. That's kind of the whole, it's like the classic, don't think about a pink elephant. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just noticed I'm thinking about one. Now I need to not think about it anymore. If we're looking at it from an OCD lens, it's like, are there mental compulsions taking place or behavioral compulsions taking place? I can go into some more detail. I'm interested to hear from y'all's lens, not being exposure therapists, how you hear this and what you think. Well, I'm I'm thinking it might even be helpful for us to just define ruminating um, for anybody who maybe hasn't heard that word. This is one of the words that in one of the groups that I lead, I give out this list of like different protective strategies that our brains reach for when we're trying to manage vulnerability. And it's really interesting when I hear different clients talk about what ruminating is like for them. And I hear people then hear somebody else describe it and they're like, oh, I had never thought about it that way. But I think the way that I understand this behavior is it's really like the brain kind of latching on to an idea or a concept or a topic and just sort of like staying on it. It's like the wheels just keep spinning and there's no real like direction. It's just like, I can't stop thinking about this. I'm thinking about it from this angle. I'm thinking about it from this angle. What if I do this with it? What if I do this with it? And like, we can't like unlatch from it in a way that's really different than when we're actively processing something, like trying to figure out what's the need here, what's the value here, what's the emotion here. Ruminating is almost more like, and and this culture is where I wonder from like an OCD perspective if this fits, like a compulsory behavior to try to manage anxiety, like to feel like we have more control than we really do. Yeah, I think rumination is almost always trying to figure out what the answer is to said thing is. And I would think, I'd be interested to hear from y'all on this, I would think we would mostly ruminate about things that are uncertain and that we don't necessarily have the ability to gain certainty over. And so that doesn't just have to be an OCD type thing. Like that can be something in our relationship. Like is Mm -hmm. my relationship intact? And then we can kind of like go over 
everything is starting some mental checking, like, okay, what was our last conversation? Like, let me look at the last text. Do I text right now? Like, it, mm-hmm. it just kind of that, like, mm-hmm. I'm needing to figure out an answer to this question and I'm just coming at it from a thousand different angles. And and also there's kind of this like chess match taking place in my head that's like, you know, no, don't text. Like that seems needy. It's like, well, but what if they think that you don't want to be in relationship with them anymore? It's like this chess match and it's like no progress is really getting made. Yes. I, I agree with the uncertainty element of it and, and anxiety. Um being probably the leading symptom that we might feel or feeling that we might feel. And I I just actually want to normalize that this is a very human experience, that this is not, you know, something that we all need to fear or self-diagnose, that all three of us in this room, I have certainty actually that we have all ruminated and we will continue to ruminate at times. And to kind of come back to what you were saying, Lauren, it's it's usually because there's something that's that's big that's happening. And our mind is trying to figure out a way to process and organize that, but it's probably not doing a very good job without some tools. So I guess like one of the first things that comes up for me is to try to get that out of your mind and try to get it onto paper, which is a big thing that I stress with my clients is to journal when that's happening, just to not let it just run free in your brain and take up, you know, whatever space it thinks it wants to take up and Mm kind of go on all these tangents. It does help us then to get to the next stage of organizing that and perhaps coming up with some sort of plan, but to at least get it out of your head is my first thought. I think going along with that as a like somatic kind of body-based therapist, I generally think of disengaging thought by dropping into the body. So really kind of trying to shift attention to the breath, which is really hard to do actually when we're in a loop of ruminating on something because there is that anxiety trying to manage something that feels uncertain or vulnerable. Um, So it can feel really hard to be like, okay, I'm going to close my eyes and just take a deep breath and really just notice the breath. I'm going to try to like drop from my head into my body and experience some stillness in the mind, which can truly feel distressing. I think sometimes people think of like, oh, I'm going to connect to my breath and that should feel like calming and regulating. And I just need to name like it can feel like a challenge to get ourselves to do it. Yeah, because we feel like we are giving up on the thing in front of us. It makes me think of like being in a war like situation and being like, just pause. I'm just going to like sit with my body and notice how my body is feeling. And like your mind is screaming at you like, stop, stop, stop. Like, don't, don't do that. Like you need to figure this out right now. And so, yeah, I think that process is really difficult to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And like all things, it takes practice, right? The more that we can get ourselves to practice that um, disengaging from thoughts and dropping back to the body, uh, the more accessible that becomes to us over time. And it really does help to give a little bit of a reset to the mind. Like when we are kind of stuck in that loop, I almost think of it as like rebooting our computer, you know, where it's like, when I have 37 different tabs open and I have everything kind of organized on my screen and I'm like, I don't want to restart my computer because it's going to close out all my tabs and then I'm going to have to go find them again. But honestly, like things are going to move more smoothly if I let the restart happen. I want to give a little bit more of like a step-by-step answer to how do I stop ruminating and 
and I'm going to speak about this from an anxiety perspective, Lauren, I'd be interested to hear you talk about this a little bit more from a trauma perspective, because I think we can ruminate on something that did happen, like a time that we did feel unsafe or like a traumatic memory. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in terms of anxiety, kind of like what Kayla said, like write it down, get it out. And if you, you are going to do that, I would say find the worst case scenario that your mind is telling you is going to happen. And you got to think of like the realistic worst case scenario because like the worst case scenario is pretty much like you die and everyone in your family and all your friends die. But it's like, you know, <laughs> if your partner breaks up with you, like that's not the <laughs> real worst case scenario. It's like mm -hmm. the reasonable worst case scenario. And so like, let's say it's my relationship is going to end. Mm -hmm. Write that down on a piece of paper just that my relationship is going to end. You can even write down my mind is telling me that my relationship is going to end and then stick it in your pocket and carry it around with you and carry it around with you all day and then the next day as well. That's been a really helpful tool for me when I have kind of like an uncertain or anxious thought. I've had to use that before when struggling with some panic attacks. And I remember just one night going out to dinner with my wife and I was really, I was just nervous. What if I have a panic attack at dinner? And I was like trying to prove to myself why I, that wouldn't happen. And there's really just no way to get there because who knows what's going to happen. So I just wrote it down and I carried it with me on the date. I just said, I will have a panic attack tonight. What do you think the science is there, Coulter? Why does that work for people to carry that in their pocket all day? Damn it, Kayla. <laughs> well, I, I actually just feel really curious. Do you know? Because you do prescribe that a lot. And I just feel, is it like the idea that if it's already there, then my mind doesn't have to keep like pulling it up. It's because you are getting practice at that thought kind of coming in and out because you're going to forget that it was there. Like you're going to forget that thing is in your pocket. And then someone will be like, what time is it? And you pull your phone out of your pocket and you're like, oh, that's right. I have this thing in my pocket. And then guess what? Like now it's back in your mind. So you're getting this practice at the thought coming in and then going away. So you're getting the evidence. Oh, I can have an uncomfortable thought. I can have this uncertain thought and it will go away. It will stop causing me a little bit less distress. And if you just have a lot of moments of that happening, then that will get easier and easier. I've also told people before to set a reminder on their phone every hour for some sort of like worst case scenario thing that's going to happen. Because after a while, it just gets kind of boring. Yeah. It reminds me of what we do in couples work often about like building tolerance for something that makes us feel really uncomfortable. So I like that idea culture of like, okay, I'm going to identify the worst case. And then I'm trying to figure out if I can learn to tolerate if that happens, you know, can, can my body tolerate that? Because I can't, you know, I can't predict for certain if that is or isn't going to happen. And I think that is going to tie it all back together. When I think from the trauma-informed perspective, the question I always ask people is like, what am I unwilling to let myself mm -hmm. feel? Yes. Right. And so with the worst case scenario, it's not just what might happen. It's what do I really not want to feel right. in my body if that does happen? And it's like this, avoidance. Totally. And uh -huh. this is something I say with trauma work all the time. Like our work is not to never get triggered. It's not to never have a panic attack. It's to trust that when I do get triggered, when a really hard feeling comes up in my body, that I can ride that wave, mm -hmm. that I know what to do with that. Yeah. Yes. We say with panic attack work, the goal is to never have a panic attack again. It's to get good at having panic attacks. And so if you have one, you can tell yourself, mm -hmm. oh, good, just another chance to practice my panic attacks. Right, which brings us all the way back to resources. If I feel like I have enough resources to manage the emotion that I don't want to feel, then 
I, then we don't have to keep pulling these old strategies that ultimately don't work for us. Mm-hmm. Lauren, I'm curious a bit more about like people ruminating on a traumatic experience because I feel like my advice wouldn't really be good for that. Like to write down like I was traumatized and carry that around mm-hmm. with me in some way. Mm-hmm. What would you say in regards to when we're ruminating on something that did happen that was r- really painful? You know, it's interesting. I actually don't hear people talk about ruminating on past traumatic experiences as much. Generally, there's more avoidance of thinking about that thing. Like, I don't want to think about it at all. I don't want to ever let that come up. And I guess if it's like a trigger that's coming up a lot, the rumination can be more connected to a hypervigilance of like, how do I prevent this from ever happening again? Which still, I think, goes back to this idea of what's the thing that I'm unwilling to let myself feel. And then that's where we in trauma work are looking at what are the resources that I would need to have to know that I can handle feeling that feeling. You know, and and some of that is like if in the past I was in a situation where I really was in danger, like my life really was being threatened, some of the resources in the present are that I need to know that right now in the present I have safety. And so I can let myself feel that thing now knowing that there is safety. And trust, right? I can trust myself in ways that I maybe wasn't able to before because I've built resources to be able to you know, rely on myself in a way that maybe I couldn't before. Yeah. Yeah. This one says, the relationship between values and non-negotiables and crafting a solid non-negotiable list. All right, Kayla, this is uh, your time to teach us what non-negotiables are. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of my more favorite things to talk about in relationship work. Um, And it does apply to both singles and people that are in relationship. A non-negotiable list is a list of 10 non-negotiable needs that you have when you are in relationship with another person. And it serves us in a dating capacity because it helps us to really discern whether or not a partner is viable for us to be able to use this list and, you know, ask specific questions while we're dating or make decisions, you know, about hey, something's triggering me and I'm trying to to categorize why this thing is triggering me from a being in a relationship standpoint, the reason that it's helpful for us is, again, kind of similarly, um, it helps us to determine what boundaries we need to make. It helps us to determine, again, to make sense really of like why something is getting so activated within us from a relational context. Um, So it's a list of 10 things and I narrow it to 10 because um, some of us like to put like a hundred things on that list and therefore um, we'll really struggle to find somebody that would meet um, all of the excessive needs that we have. And then some of us only put like two things on a list and are not really doing ourselves justice to consider all of the elements that need to go into a non-negotiable list. So I guess before we answer the question, I have curiosity around whether either of the two of you have some things in mind for yourself from a relational context about what your non-negotiable needs are and and have you ever used something like this before? I think for me, I feel pretty clear on what my non-negotiable needs are. I don't know that I've ever like written it out in a list. Like I'm thinking back to even when I was dating um, or looking for a partner Um, I don't think I wrote it out, but I definitely had a sense of some of the things that I'd learned through my own therapy work and through, you know, processing past relationships, like things that I really need. Something that I always think about is actually the difference between a need versus a want. Mm -hmm. And 
the relationship between those things, I generally think like a want is a negotiable version of how a need could be met. So for me, like an example would be um, emotional intimacy is a really important need for me. I need to be able to feel emotionally connected to somebody that I'm in relationship with. So this sense of like there's space for us to talk about our emotions. There's space to really be known of how we're similar and how we're different. But there's a lot of different ways that that need could be met. You know, it could be met through sitting and having really direct conversations about our feelings from the day. It could be met through like, oh, we're reading a book together and talking about how we each feel about that book. It could be met through we're learning about each other. Like, oh, when you have a stressful day, this is what feels really helpful for you. And so I think where I, where I see people kind of go off track sometimes with this non-negotiable list is that they focus on the want. Like this is the way that it, it has, has to, to happen mm-hmm. versus like here's the need underneath that. And it's actually negotiable. We can bring some creativity to how that need gets met. Yeah. I like that difference between the want and the need. What's a want and what's a need to, here's how I would answer this question, the relationship between values and non-negotiables. The first thing that comes to my mind is, is this an individual value or a relational value? And like, can I get this need essentially met on my own? So I might think of like, I don't know, let's say like, I really value like competition. And so like, I like going out and like competing and golf is my favorite thing to do. But like, and so I don't need my partner to take part in that with me. Um, or someone might have a, a value of like adventure. And the question is like, do you need your partner to do that with you? Like, do you need to be with a partner where you're like taking trips to Europe or going on hikes Or is that a thing that you're like, I'm really satisfied to go hiking by myself? And I think that's like a question for you to answer yourself. There's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer, but there's there's certain things I can think of that are values of mine, like fun and playfulness. I need a partner who is fun and playful. Like I, I wouldn't be satisfied in a relationship without having someone who likes to laugh and is playful. I wouldn't be okay just getting that met in my friendships. I like what you're saying about creating your individual values list and then perhaps uh, creating a relational values list and having some differences there. I think values are a are a really big component of creating a non-negotiable list, but I don't think it's the only component. And that's where I think there is a difference. It almost reminds me of when we had that um, values podcast and we talked about the difference between a value and a goal. Um, And this is sort of similar. Yes, your values should certainly influence your non-negotiable needs, but there are other things like love languages, personality differences, you know, goals in life and and things like that that I think also come into play when we're constructing this needs list. And yes, Coulter, I think you're right that um, some of our needs can get met in, you know, various settings and some of them are specific to our intimate partner. And that's where you're going to have to continue to ask yourself questions where Lauren was at, where whether this is a want or a need. And it it really is quite a process to define this non-negotiable list and hold yourself accountable to making sure it's a need and not a a want. Mm-hmm. And I really think that when we're trying to discern that difference, for any want that we name, we should be able to pinpoint what's the need underneath that. You know, if I'm like, oh, I really want a partner who will 
take out the trash every week. Mm-hmm. Like if that feels really important, I hate taking out the trash and I really you like want to take my out your trash once a week. Yeah, like the trash bin. I'm talking about the trash bins to the uh, curb. Okay. <laughs> How often do you does your trash pickup come? Just once a week. I thought you've been taking the trash outside to, to the bin. No, that part I'm fine doing. <laughs> right. But it's like if that's the thing that I'm saying is my want, like really underneath that, the need is probably I I need a partner who's willing to engage in partnership. I need to feel supported. Like I'm not gonna be the only one managing all of the tasks. But honestly, like it's gonna be negotiable whether the trash is the thing that like is the make or break for if that need could be met. You know, maybe I have a partner who's like, I also hate taking out the trash and could we switch off with that one, but I'm fine doing the dishes and can you do the laundry? Like we can kind of negotiate, but the need underneath it is it's important to make sure I have partnership and support. So yeah, it's it's funny to hear us talking about this and I don't want to get too lost in your example, like getting lost <laughs> in the weeds of like the trash, but this is where I love Kayla that you say you only get 10 because mm-hmm. it, it's like, do you really want to use one of yours on right. must take out the trash? Exactly. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I was chatting with a friend the other day and she had gone on a date with someone and they had essentially like used a word that she didn't like and was kind of almost like putting that on her non-negotiables list. It was like some sort of, you know, Gen Z lingo or something of like aging myself again, like, you know, like (laughs) mid or lit or something like that. And she was like, he said that I can't go out with him. I was like, is that really what you're going to use one of your non-negotiables on? It kind of reminds me of like Seinfeld also. Like they always had like a million things like Mm -hmm. Jerry and George were always breaking up with women because just like, just the dumbest things of all time that you could ever ever think of, of like her fingernails look weird or something. And it's like, they always had like a hundred non-negotiables. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's going to be a pretty lonely road if you are not really narrowing down what you need to ground yourself to in those situations where you're maybe looking for quote unquote, like red flags. And I would say this may not be a, a, a wildly happy response to this, but I do think there are a couple things that are universal that need to be on a non-negotiable list. Things like communication, which again, we can have some level of variance in how that need is met, but they're probably universally in relationship. We should have some ability to communicate. And and then you're looking at things from there, like the desire for frequency for that, the depth. I mean, there's there's so many things that can come, you know, come up from putting communication on there. So I always like to say there's like a there's a core 10, but then there's like a subset of how you define those things for you so that you can get really clear. Are those not on your 10? Like the, the universal ones? One? Yeah, the universal ones. No, or- they are on your 10. Oh, okay. So that there's already going to so really be things. Like four, you'll, exactly. you really only need to pick six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so so communication is one. Out of those six, one. you might not get half of them, so. <laughs> 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 exactly. I mean, but it really does, you know, put things in perspective, I think, because there are certain things that we need, and then there are certain things that we are preference towards, and those can blend if we're not careful. So communications one, I would say needs to be on there and some level of trust and safety probably needs to be on there as well as emotion, connection to emotion is what I would say are probably universal. Do you guys have any others that you would say need to be on there? I think a a big one for me was always like family planning 
goals if you know that you like absolutely have to have children or you absolutely do not want children or you're still on the fence about that. I think that feels like a non-negotiable one a lot of times. Yeah. And then this probably goes in line with what you were saying about communication, but I just think about like conflict management, like how do we how do we do conflict? Like that just feels really important to me to know that I can do conflict with anybody in my life, not just my romantic partner, but like with my friendships and my coworkers, you know, with you guys in the room. Like it's really important that we're able to move through things that can feel like ruptures and get back to repair and reconnection. Yeah. And this list then forces you to have those hard conversations that you maybe don't always want to have, but help you to prevent yourself from getting into a situation where down the road you're like, why the heck did I, was I in this relationship or this friendship for so long? This person never met my needs. I don't know what I was doing. It's a way to really check yourself to ensure that you are making the right choices in relationships. Yeah. Great question. I like that one. Yeah, that was a good one. All right. I got one for us. Um, it says, one question I had was around blaming self versus blaming others. I've noticed that people generally fall into two camps, blame others or blame self when there's a problem. What makes us more likely to be a self-blamer or other blamer? Mm, I like this question too. Um, this makes me think back to, again, that list I've referenced a few times of like protective behaviors and strategies that our minds reach for when we're trying to manage vulnerability or more commonly avoid vulnerability and blame whether we're externalizing that outward or internalizing it inward is kind of like a control seeking strategy. Like if I can blame somebody else for why I shouldn't have to feel something uncomfortable, um, it's like we can discharge that energy. Yeah. 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 It's Uh like, okay, if you could just be different, if this external thing could just be different, then I wouldn't have to feel something uncomfortable. And some of us do more the inverse where something is uncomfortable and it's like, okay, well, I'm going to blame myself then. If I could just be different, if something about me could just be different, then I wouldn't have to feel this thing that's uncomfortable. And I think certainly like some people trend more towards one or the other, the external blame or internal. And honestly, I think a lot of people do both. They mix it up. But either way, I think it's really looking at the strategy of, again, what is the thing I'm unwilling to feel and how is kind of discharging blame in this way giving me this like illusory sense of control? Yeah, it does feel really connected to control for me too. And then, yeah. So I think the the thing that comes up for me uh, from an attachment perspective is what was conditioned for us, what was modeled for us. And, you know, did I observe maybe a parent, uh, you know, voicing blame or, excuse me, voicing shame, right? Because shame would be the internal blame, the self-blame. You know, I'm so bad. I'm so messed up. I do this all the time. And that really strong inner critic, was that modeled for me Um, or, or the inverse, right? Was did I have a parent that was like, oh, you always do this and you're the problem and, you know, and your father does this all the time, right? Was there a lot of that, you know, that I ingested? I always think it's important to note how we might respond differently to the exact same thing. So, you know, if you have the parent who like blames everybody else for everything all the time, like you could walk out of childhood kind of doing the same thing, like learning like, oh, it's other people's fault, like when something happens. Or you could kind of watch that parent be like really unsuccessful in their relationships and be like, you know, 
my parent always blamed everybody else for everything. And so I always look to myself for like what I should have done differently because I don't want to be like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of this, the egocentrism too idea when we're really young. And so the neglect piece comes up for me too of like if there was an absence of conversations with my parents, maybe because they had to, you know, work far away or just work excessively or really pay attention to one of my siblings. They just, for whatever reason, they were not as, you know, active with communication and modeling of emotion. When we're really young, we're egocentric, meaning that the world revolves around us. And so our thoughts can then trend towards self-blame because I'm not really having anybody else to process any of this with. And sometimes that inner critic can get really fueled up in that place and kind of stay fueled up if we're not paying attention to that and changing some of the content of those thoughts. So I think neglect can also be a piece that in influences the self-blame. I also think that depending on some of that attachment history and what we've learned about our ability to get connection with other people or not, it's like looking at our relationship to either fear of abandonment. Um, Like if I have this really strong fear that if I do express anger that I'm going to lose connection, then that's going to probably make me more likely to blame myself because it doesn't feel as safe to blame others. If I get angry and kind of direct that outward, hey, you're doing something and I don't like this. And even to an appropriate degree, right? Like using anger to navigate boundaries. If that feels really scary to our system, then I do see more of a trend to just blame the self. I just kind of make everything about me um, in order to keep the relational connection intact. And then on the inverse, people who struggle more with shame, like this sense of, I don't want to feel like I'm bad, like I'm not good enough, like I can never get it right. There's going to be a lot more defensiveness that comes up around that. And so a tendency actually to like blame others so that it's trying to protect from that internal feeling of inadequacy. Do you guys think Taylor Swift submitted this question? Why are you asking it's that? me. I am the problem. <laughs> and then all the other yeah. songs about other people being the problem. <laughs> I'm a Swifty and I did not catch that. But <laughs> I had so many clients bring up that song though. Like that really strikes a chord with a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. I'm not a Swifty. Mm. Sorry, Taylor. I guess I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is Dustin. <laughs> yeah. I want to say something. I feel like this is probably going to be unpopular. Lauren, I know you're going to have like a it depends type of answer to it. And yeah, I know everything always, you know, you know me freak, so well. Oh, everything always freaking depends. And it does. <laughs> well, the first thing I say, I don't think this will be unpopular. It's always kind of both, right? Like, you know, there's things that we contribute to and things that we could have done differently. And then there's, you know, things that other people do because other people are active agents with free will in this world. And so I generally think it is better to come back to yourself and like, what could I have done differently about this? Just, and maybe that's the control seeking behavior, but it's just that like, uh, that's the only thing I can really do something about. And so, you know, if Kayla and I are in conflict, I think it's usually better for me to think, you know, okay, like, is, is there something I could have done to approach this a little bit? better. I just think that yields better results a fair amount of the time. I think from like a healthy place culture, you're describing individuation, right? Like if I can always kind of bring it back to what is within my control, what is within my ability to communicate about these are my feelings here and my values and my needs, that's actually more healthy vulnerability, I think. And it's also looking at that difference between guilt versus shame, right? Where guilt 
can be a productive emotion where we might assess like, okay, I could see how I delivered that message, maybe not like in the best timing or maybe not in the best setting. And so I can own that and be accountable for that. And I don't think that's necessarily the same thing as self-blame. Like that's not going to this shaming place of I suck. It's just kind of looking at like, yeah, here's what's in my control and I can see how that maybe landed in an unhelpful way. I want to give one more example of it. So I've heard something that in terms of like running a business, in terms of management, that you need to over-communicate to people by a factor of 10. That Meaning that like, you know, so I run this business and if I tell people, hey guys, like here's our new system for this, I need to say it nine more times. And if I've said it five times and one of you comes to me and is like, you know, I didn't know we were supposed to be doing it this way. It's kind of both. It's kind of like, okay, like, I did tell it to you. Maybe you should have remembered. Maybe I should have said it more times. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you two are in leadership here and I always bring it back to like, okay, like what can we do differently? Yeah. And what you're describing is also from a relational context, what we share often, which is repetition builds new neural pathways in the brain. And so even if we think we've had a conversation with a friend or a partner or a parent about something that we need and we feel like we've made that really explicit, it's probably not enough to just say it one time. We probably really need to get in the mindset of saying it more like five or 10 times more like 10 would be my suggestion um, because it doesn't sink in because our values are different and our experiences are different. And that's the individuation piece. Well, even I knew that I, I, caught one the other day. Even I knew that. No, I said even I need that. Oh, uh, I knew that. Even I knew that. I'm not the smart one. <laughs> Dr. Becky said something to me on Instagram the other day. Um, <laughs> she did. Yeah, personally to me. Well, I think like a million other people saw it, but <laughs> she said that punishments don't work because they don't build skill. Mm -hmm. And it finally clicked with me. And I'm pretty sure I've heard her say it 15 times mm -hmm. before. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I always just send my son to his room and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I get it. I get it now. I'm going to do it. So I, I kind of want to use that to go into our, our next one on social media. Oh, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Lauren. Okay, so this question is, what are your favorite and least favorite social media representations of psychology concepts? I love this question. I'm just, I'm ready to sink my teeth into this because I've got a lot of least favorites. <laughs> Start us off. Walter. No, I want to hear you two talk first. Okay, I hate almost all couples therapy on any like media platform. Yes, yeah. get them. I really do. It's, it's it's really poor work most of the time, but I, I, I'm thinking about the, the thing that I like actually, which is on Showtime. I think it's actually just called couples therapy. Have you guys mm -hmm, seen I've that? I've heard of that one. I can't remember the lady's name right now, but she it does a really fantastic job of just displaying what couples therapy, I think looks like. And so I, I'm going to start with the one I like, which is couples therapy on Showtime. I think that's really well done. But I will say most other, not even just couples therapy, but any like renditions of watching therapy really makes me extremely triggered. Specifically the one with Will Ferrell. What's that one on Apple? Oh, well, I mean, that's a depiction of what horrible therapy is. Yes, it's I supposed know, to be that. But I hate it. It really drives well, me it's, nuts. Well, it's, yeah, it's really, it, it's uh, the shrink next door, yeah, which is about like the psychiatrist who mm -hmm. like kind of like took over his client's life and like moved into his house and like moved that guy into the guest house. And it's like a pretty dark story. It should be upsetting. Yeah. I, I loved like that, that show. <laughs> I I've not it. seen that show. It's infuriating. Yeah. 
Okay, you're talking more about like shows uh-huh. versus like yeah, we can talk on, about like, all the Instagram things. But yeah, for shows, it took me a second to yeah. catch up to that. The one on Hulu too was kind of cool. Did you guys see the that patient? one? Patient. Yeah, that I was, liked that, that one. Was fa- I try. I don't take in a lot of therapy content outside of this office. In terms of social media, the thing I always think it kind of relates back to our last question about like self blame versus blaming others. I just feel like there's so much social media content about how to deal with narcissists and what happens when you're getting gaslit and why nobody respects your boundaries. And a lot of that information is helpful, but it's like if you were an alien species and you all you did was look through therapy Instagram, you would probably think like, wow, probably 75% of the mm-hmm. people in this world are, are abusers. And yes. you know, there's 25% of them who are trying to figure out how to live with those people. So I just feel like that that is out of balance. And like I prefer to follow therapists or psychology concepts that are a little bit more about like me building skills than like trying to teach other people in my life skills. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of framing it, kind of looking at the angle of what's helpful from social media content is things that are encouraging us to look at ourselves, right? Like even how you referenced Dr. Becky's content. So Dr. Becky is a parenting expert and Um, She puts a ton of content out there of like, here are specific scripts that you as a parent can use. Here are ways that you as a parent can understand complicated behavior that you see come up for kids. Um, Here's why punishment doesn't work because it doesn't teach skills. So I think those things are really helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, and it wouldn't be helpful if if she was just like, toddlers are awful, right? Aren't they the worst? Mm -hmm. Because it just makes you, it just fuels the fire. You're like, yeah, Yeah, it it is horrible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, the, on the inverse, there is a ton of content on social media that is, you know, you named some of the buzzwords culture, like gaslighting and narcissists and toxic people. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, like everything you joked earlier, I, I'm always coming from this place of like everything depends and everything is, yeah. you know, can there be something helpful for somebody who's grown up like in a very boundaryless way and has never been able to look at like, oh, maybe there are behaviors that I do need to start looking at having more boundaries around? Totally. But if we're taking something from social media and then just prescribing for other people in our life, like see you are toxic, mm-hmm. see you are a narcissist, like yeah. that doesn't really help us within our own yeah. realm of control. Yeah. I, the one account that I always recommend for my couples and people in relationship is called the secure relationship. I was mm, waiting that's for a good one. That. Yes. I love that account. I love it. And it's, it's really, it's attachment based and there's a lot of really good pictures and, um, she just spends quite a bit of time uh, really like getting the nuancey information out there and, because it is complicated to try to understand if we're more of a pursuer withdrawer. And there's just so many different ways that she articulates that information. And um, again, it's really visual. So I like that account a lot. And it's also really generous. Like it, it mm-hmm. is really like yes. understand these behaviors yes. from a compassionate place, not from like, here's what's terrible exactly. and here's what sucks. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like, I think it's Nicole LaPera's account, The Holistic Psychologist. She does a lot of like acting and uses a lot of props and she really like role plays and models like oh here's what it can sound like in our mind if if we have an anxious attachment style or if we are recovering from trauma so again it has that really like self-focus 
that I think is helpful. I do think there's something helpful about people being able to like normalize certain concepts and experience a sense of relatability and name some of their own experiences. But yeah, I think it just keeps coming back to like when we're focused so much on others, that is less helpful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our last question is transactional relationships and how to make relationships more relational. Yeah. And I'm looking at our time and we've got just a little bit left, but I've worked on this one before with people. And I remember um, working with someone who's like a president of their company or executive or something like that and was talking about like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing kind of people in kind of this transactional way because at work, I'm just like, I'm trying to get stuff done. And like, and there's a lot of people that do this is see others in kind of a transactional way. Like, okay, well, what are you going to get done for me? And wanting to be more relational. And so the thing that we worked on is like anytime someone would come into his office, he would take his glasses off close his computer and turn his phone over upside down to communicate to that person. Like I'm here to listen to you. Like I'm here to be present with you. And it was also a cue for himself, kind of like a bodily cue. Like this is my cue for myself to check in right now. And I've done that before. Like I've kept uh, some blue light glasses on my coffee table uh, when I was doing therapy. And if I, I was having trouble staying present in a session, I just put my glasses on. It's kind of like, this is like a cue for me to remember that I'm sitting in front of a human and I need to be relational in this moment. It, it feels like a mindset for me in, in what you're sharing and uh, maybe something for people to just try to apply of like this idea that I'm not maybe behaving in a way in my relationship to get something. I'm behaving to be in relationship. I think that's, you know, the, I think the term is like manipulation, right? I'm giving you a hug because I want a hug back, right? Rather than I'm giving you a hug because it's relational and I I want the hug or I want us to hug right now. I want to be in this embrace, right? It, the transaction is then I'm doing this to get something. So I guess maybe shifting the mindset out of I'm doing something to get something and into I'm doing this to be or I'm doing this because this meets my need rather than trying to exchange that for something else from the other person. Yeah, I just to kind of reiterate what you're saying in my own wording, it's like coming from this place of I can have needs in a relationship just because I have them, yeah. not because I have to earn yes, the ability like to have my needs mm -hmm. met, right? right? I don't have to um, do something for you in order to justify that you should do something for me. Yeah. Um, it's okay for me actually to just come from this vulnerable place of saying like, I just really need some support right now. Like we can ask for something more vulnerably. And then also when we're managing our own energy well, our own boundaries, we can then be really intentional about what we can give, you know, where it's like, I don't have to wait for you to do something for me to say like, oh, now I can give you something. It's like, oh, I got enough rest last night and I have some bandwidth. And so um, I can offer support just because you're a person I care about in my life. All right. Well, that is all we have for you today. So thanks for checking us out. And if you are new around here, we are all about helping you improve your relationships with other people, as well as improve your relationship to yourself. I've heard someone say before that we can't be any closer to someone else than we can be to ourselves. I'm not 100% sure if that checks out, but I think I like it pretty well. If you're looking for a little bit more, you can check out our website, Thrive Therapy PHX. 
www.thisisthefuture.com and check out our membership portal. We've got different video courses on there for you. And of course, if you are local here in Arizona, we've got plenty of group options for you to check out as well. So join us next week. We're going to be talking about ghosting. You know, when you don't call somebody back and just kind of fall off the face of the earth, should you do it? Is it good? Have you ever been ghosted before? Is it bad? I don't know. We'll discuss. So until next time.